Welcome to Of One Heart, the podcast where we learn the life stories of members of the Anacortes Ward family. The mission of this podcast is to help us as Anacortes Ward family members to come to know each other and to connect with each other in richer and more meaningful ways. During the podcast, the hosts will ask questions that allow the individual being interviewed an opportunity to tell their life story. As we come to know each other and as we are willing to be known, our connections to one another will deepen and our shared quest to become of one heart and one mind will be encouraged. These interviews can also be used as a basis to start a life story to be shared with your own posterity. Welcome back to the podcast of One Heart, where the Anacortes Ward members tell their life stories. And today I'm joined with my co-host, Christine. Hello, Brian. And Christine is going to be interviewed today. Lucky me. We have been in Boston serving a mission for about a year and uh, we stockpiled about a year's worth of interviews, and now we're out. So we figured we would do a couple more interviews of each other. (laughs) Christine is the youngest, so she gets to go first. (laughs) So, Christine, we'll start off with our questions about Anacortes. Um, Which do you prefer, Ace or Sibos? Ace. Safeway or the market? Safeway. The donut house or the market muffins. grocery? Store grocery muffins. Store grocery muffins. Okay. Village pizza. Village pizza. pizza factory. Or pizza factory. It's been a long time. I'm not really a pizza fan, but I love the pizza factory. Had a salad bar, at least pre-COVID. I don't know if that's come back yet, but I liked getting a nice salad there because they had lots of different ingredients. Okay. All right. You passed the test. Let's just start with uh, you starting about talking about your family, where you were born, and your the your family, your parents uh, when you were when you were born, your situation. Just start there, and we'll we'll go from there. Both of my parents were raised in the gospel, and all of their parents were raised in the gospel, except my mother's father joined the church in the Netherlands and came over to Ogden on the train when he was about 14 or 16. But her mother was living there in Ogden. They just lived down the street from each other and got married when they were a little bit older. So she had good parents uh, raised in the church. Uh, My father's side, ancestors had come from Denmark and um, Sweden and England, um, all coming over to the Salt Lake area. My grandfather was raised outside of Logan, Utah, in Providence on a big farm, and my grandmother uh, lived in a couple different places. Idaho was one of them. So we had a line of... um, So they were very... All of them were faithful members, and the gospel was a big part of their lives, and my parents incorporated that into our upbringing as well service in the church was very important to them. So they met at BYU. It was quite unusual, I believe, at the time for my mother to... So she, her last year at BYU, she met this young man in her class. 
one of her classes. And uh, he was from the Seattle area. And uh, anyway, they started dating and got married. I think they dated all year. Then they broke up and they got married the next year. Well, obviously got back together again. Anyway, they got married after BYU, and my dad went to Harvard Business School. After uh, two years there, they moved to Seattle. He was going to live near his parents or with his parents. Actually, they lived in Bellevue, outside of Seattle. And um, so my parents had two children in the Boston area, and then two more, and then me. So I was the fifth. So I was the fifth of the, well, 11 children. After a few years in Seattle, my dad worked from some different companies, and then he got hired by IBM, International Business Machines. But the joke at the time was that IBM stood for I've been moved. So we did move around quite a bit. The family moved to Salt Lake City when I was just a few weeks old, maybe a month old. I think it was just a couple weeks. And after Salt Lake, they moved to Terrytown, New York, um, which is north of New York City. And then they had the opportunity to go over to England for two years. So the family went over to England, and we rode on big steamships. There was not much airplane travel back then. So we rode on the Queen Mary over to England with by then my mother had seven children can you imagine <laughs> and we lived for two years in England and then we came back to Connecticut New Canaan Connecticut my dad was working in still for IBM with all these places at different offices so most of my growing we stayed in New Canaan for 12 years but those 12 years were kind of bookend by traumatic events. So the first one in England, um, I was four, and my next brother, younger than me, his name was Todd. The boys went to a boys' private school, and the girls went to a girls' private school. I guess that's just what you did in England. And my mother had to drive everybody to wherever they, the other different schools. And I was in kindergarten, so she would pick me up earlier and then go back later in the afternoon to get the other kids. So we were in our Volkswagen bus, because that was the only kind of car that would fit such a big family. And this was before there were seatbelts and car seats, and people didn't worry about things like that. So I was four or five. I always said I was four or five, and um, going to pick up the kids from school. My brother Todd was in the car with us, and my little sister Suzette was just a baby, maybe about a year old, was in the car with us. My my little brother Todd was moving around, and uh, I was talking with my mother, and she was singing me songs, and all of a sudden she says, Todd, and she stopped the car, and he had been playing with the door handles, and the door had flown open, and he had fallen out of the car. And she, you know, stopped the car, pulled over, and I just sorry, stayed in the car. I was just terrified. I didn't know what was happening or what was going on. I was just so scared. And um, she jumped out and ran back. And after a little while, I saw sirens and police cars and ambulances coming and and then after a while a 
policeman came and got in the car and was chatting and talking with us and he drove us away and he said, I'm just going to take you to my house. I'm sure he had a British accent. I'll just take you to my house. I don't know, for a little while. And so me and Suzette went to this officer's house until my parents could come get us later in the evening. So Todd, after he fell out, the car behind us had hit him and um, he died pretty instantly. But my mother had gone in the hospital with him gone in an ambulance to the hospital with <laughs> So that was a very difficult time for our family. Of course, I was little and uh, it, don't remember as much. But my mother's just said later how hard it was for her and my dad, how he would go to work in the mornings and not really go to work. He would just walk and walk and walk through the streets of London. And she was would just be at home so depressed with all the children. We actually flew to America for the funeral and they buried Todd there in the Provo Cemetery next to Grandpa Shipper and then later Grandma Shipper was buried there also. So uh, that was a hard time um, but I believe we were in England for almost another year. Um, another brother was born there, Richard, and then we moved back to Connecticut. And then those years in Connecticut were just wonderful years. Um, we loved the area. It was just beautiful New England. We bought um, a big house. Well, you know, there were seven of us, eight. We kept growing up to 10 of us. Uh, well, 11. Todd made 11. We were a half hour from the nearest Mormon church building. It was up in Bridgeport. And people came from a half hour in the other direction, too. So the stake was very, very spread out. Uh, it went almost up to New Haven and down to New York City and then um, up to West Point and Poughkeepsie area. But it was probably a three-hour drive from New York up to the in, in any, any direction. And my father, early on, was called into the stake presidency. So he was always traveling on Sundays and several weeknights, it seemed, going to different meetings or different branches. But, uh, and this was when I was growing up, we went on Sunday morning. My brothers would drive up to a priesthood meeting, and then my mother would bring the rest of the children up. And we would have a Sunday school, which consisted of a like a 20-minute opening exercises and then class time. And then we'd all come home, and then we'd go back up in the evening again for sacrament meeting, which was an hour, an hour and a half. So this was a 30-minute drive each way, back and forth, back and forth. And then on Tuesdays, we had primary in the afternoons, and on Wednesdays, the kids had mutual. And Thursday mornings, my mother would go up for Relief Society meetings, and then often on Friday or Saturday, there was a ward dinner, or a stake event, or a Cub Scout meeting, or practicing for something, or getting ready for a program, or doing something involved in the stake. We were just very, very busy, but that was, those were all our friends. I hardly had any friends in the town or in the community. One, one neighbor friend, her name was Carla Anderson, and she lived, lived up the street from me, and she just had two older brothers, and they were quite a bit older, so she was alone. And every day after school, she would call me, and I'd almost always walk up to her house, and we'd play up there. And 
but by the time I got into middle school or junior high, we called it then, when I was 12, I was just so much more involved with other things going on at with church things that we didn't do as much in, in high school. With that many kids, our life was pretty chaotic, actually. House was always a mess. You never knew what was for dinner. <laughs> there was comings and goings. It was. Not, I think every one of us has a story of being forgotten and not picked up after school or not picked up or missing appointments, you know, late to everything. It was just... Uh, uh, with all that many kids and our different activities, we were very busy. My mother also had us involved in music lessons. Almost everybody took some piano or some other instruments. Oh, but we did dance. We all took dance lessons at the Walter Schock School of Dance. And this was not like any other dance program I've ever seen. It was not ballet. It was not jazz. <laughs> it was the kind of dancing that you might see on Broadway. Um, just musical comedy, we called the classes. So you started out learning ballroom steps, uh, basic cha-cha and rumba and waltz. And the fad was the modern dance, I guess you could say. And um, Marcel, my oldest sister, she took the first classes, and we all just loved it. So we all took classes in it. And after you had had two years of ballroom, then you could take uh, either an all-girl dance class or a combination boy-girl, which was, oh, jitterbug. We learned jitterbug, and that was a lot of fun. The swing, people call it now. And every year in the spring, he would have a big uh, review, and all the classes would come on stage and and show the dances that they learned through the year. And he had, this was a huge production. He rented out the high school theater for a whole month. They built on an extra stage to it so the dancers could get out and move around. And he always had a theme to it. It was around the world or TV and movies and Broadway or under the sea. or I don't know. He always had fun different themes. And the dances would go along with that. And um, by the end of the year, you had rehearsal after rehearsal for your group. And then you'd go and you'd run through the whole shoe. And his costumes, he had great costumes, but he never made anybody pay for them. So we loved to dance through our high school years. We all were involved in that. We had a great big yard, a lot of property. My dad loved to work in the yard. And he'd have us mowing the lawns and raking the leaves in the fall. He built, he had a great big, a very nice patio and a pool built shortly after we moved in. So summers were just very relaxing and fun. We'd play outside. He also bought uh, some, a fun swing set, but this is my dad. None of this Kmart swing set. This was like industrial style. These great big, they must have been 14 feet high or something. This great big triangular ends and the swings hung way down and he had two of them so there were four swings and two push and pulls the, the kind of a thing that two people could sit on together and you had your feet in your hands and you pushed and pulled and he also bought a trampoline and this was back when nobody had trampolines so we were pretty cool with our trampoline what types of things did you as a family do together <laughs> hmm. 
Like your, with your sisters or your brothers, what would you do? You know, as a whole family, I don't, other than church things, I don't remember. Like we didn't take a lot of trips um, because it was just hard to take that many people. It was hard for my mother to get organized and to, you know, function with something like that. But just with two or three, I would play with, that was the great thing about having a big family. There was always somebody to play with, always somebody to fight with, always somebody to do something with. You know, actually a lot, I, I read a lot. I would just go to my room and read. That was your go-to like to read. Go-to, go-to activity. <laughs> that was my go-to. I like to read. <laughs> do you remember reading from a very early age or that started when you were in? Always. I just remember always As soon as you learned reading. to read, you were reading. Yeah. And what genre of book would you like to read the best, most? Oh, fiction things. and. But not science fiction. <laughs> no, no. Well, I like Wrinkle in Time. That's kind of science fiction. Our library at the elementary school had this whole shelf or two of these books, and they were biographies uh, written for a younger age. And I don't remember the brand or what it was, but I, I, I loved going through those and just reading about different people. Virginia Dare and Dolly Madison and oh, Daniel Boone, different ones. And... And for a while, my mother signed us up for a, like a, a, a mail order books, and those books would come once a month. And I loved reading those, Tillicum and Sir McHenry, books people have never heard of. <laughs> <laughs> and then I read, uh, my brother Jim was a big reader too, and he got me hooked on uh, the Chronicles of Narnia and Alistair MacLean suspense novels. I read some of them. I liked things like Little Women or what was something Gone with the Wind when I was older. I read Gone with the Wind. My family still teases me about that. Oh, where's Christine? She's down in the room reading Gone with the Wind. There were there was a time when I came upstairs and I said, Where's everybody? And they'd all gone to a movie. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even, didn't even know about it. <laughs> Obviously they didn't know I was missing. <laughs> So besides so, dance, what else did you were you involved with like in your high school years? I liked to do drama. I was involved in some of the plays. Never, never had a part that was any lines to learn. Always in the background, just in the background. And one time I would, I just helped with the costumes. So but, not really a drama queen. Oh no, 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 not, not a. And what was your? Did you have a job in high school? Well, at the end of my senior year, I did have a job for about a month. <laughs> there was a dress shop in town, and my friend and I had been shopping for prom dresses. And the lady said, oh, you're both so tall. Would you come and model wedding dresses for me? It was a wedding shop, so they you know, had fancy dresses, too, for prom. So we would go occasionally to bridal shows and model her dresses for her. And then, oh, she actually had me like... Um, so ironing them or making little repairs. I had taken a lot of home ec classes, and so I could do a few things on a sewing machine, mostly iron. But, oh, as a family, like I said, we didn't travel very much, though my dad, you know, my brothers were very much into scouting. My dad was very involved in the stake, and he loved the youth program in the stake. He was always trying to get great things happening in the stake. And our, 
I feel like we pioneered Super Saturday, the idea of all meeting together and having an activity and a seminary lesson. It was once a month for 14 and up. You'd have an activity and a seminary lesson, a dinner, and then a dance. And um, there was just a great way to, to get together and do things. And he, he was always just involved. And then youth conference ideas, fun things. He would do these great things. And he loved camping. And so he was very... Uh, uh, we had a whole room in the basement that was full of camping gear, and he often would take the boys on camp trips, and sometimes the older boys and girls on camp trips. I have a vague memory of camping as a family, as the whole family, when I was pretty young. So don't tell my mother. She would just roll her eyes and say, Are you kidding? Your father took all you kids camping. We went camping all the time. But I have no memory of camping with my family, other than this very vague one. When I was, what are some things that you would say that you learned from your parents growing up there in Connecticut? My dad, hard work, and um, he loved doing things outside. And both of them, service to the church, just always doing something for the ward and for other people. Oh, my mother was the the shuttle bus for all the inactive families, taking them to primary, taking them to mutual. We were always stopping and picking up extra kids to take them up to different activities. And she, from her, she loved programs and skits and songs. She and her friends were always rewriting the words to songs to make funny, clever little skits and acting them out and having little um, programs just all the time. She loved doing that. She was always, it's good. Mom always does nice things for other people and likes to be involved with others like that. So, so during your adolescent years, growing up years, how would you characterize your faith development, your development of testimony and your relationship with God? But I do remember one evening, I was maybe 13 or so, 12 or 13, and we were driving home from church. No, I must have been older because it was in the van. And I don't remember any of the talks at the meeting. Oh, by the way, that those all-day church thing, about the time I was 12, they changed the policies and went to the three-hour block and only meeting like one night a week. So um, most of my high school years, we were not doing all that driving. But this night, I was coming home from church with the family, sitting in the back of the car, and I don't remember what was said or what was going on or why, but I just remember this feeling that it's true. It's all true. And then I, um, when I started seminary and we read the Book of Mormon for the first time, Someone, one of the leaders in the ward got this idea of a Book of Mormon read-a-thon, and we all met at the church on a Friday after school, and we read till about eight o'clock at night. They gave us some tips on how to speed read and how to take notes and remember things, and had all these new notebooks and new Book of Mormons and sharp little pencils for us. It was just so funny. <laughs> and uh, sisters in the ward would bring us snacks or come and make dinner, or do do the food, and then the next morning we met up there about eight o'clock in the morning, and we sped red all day long, and they would time us so that everybody was right on track, and they'd have visiting people come in and share it with us. Anyway, we read the whole Book of Mormon in 24 hours. It was a little bit longer, a day and a half. 
And at the end, we all had a testimony meeting, and we really felt the spirit of the, the book right then, and I've always loved it since then. So that was a start to my testimony of the Book of Mormon. And we had an opportunity to visit up in the Sacred Grove and the Joseph Smith area, the Palmyra area. We went to the pageant. I went 12. We were actually, my dad took some of us, again, not the whole family, but some of us participated in the pageant as, you know, the cast up there. And I enjoyed doing that. Spiritual moments, being up there in that area and hearing so much about Joseph Smith and the Book of Mormon and all that happened there. So what happened to you after high school? What's, what's next for you? Well, I had planned to go to Rick's College. Everybody, all my friends thought I was crazy. Most everybody went to BYU. But I decided to go to Rick's, and I was excited about it. And then my mom and dad said, we're moving to Indonesia. <laughs> what? So tell me why you decided to go to Rick's. What, what, what? Were there other choices for you, and then oh, what yes. made you decide? I'd been accepted at BYU, too. Provo. And, yeah, Provo. And that's where everybody's going, and that's where everybody... Um, I, I don't know why. I just kept feeling like... I, I don't know if I wanted to be different or if it was really the Spirit just saying, this is the place for you. And it really was. It turned out to be just the most wonderful experience for me. So it you were a little rebellious exciting. there going to Idaho. Well, I'd grown up just being a Clawson, and I, was, I guess maybe I did need something different. <laughs> Which was a wonderful thing to be. It was it was great. People say, "Oh, you're a Clawson." They just automatically you were a wonderful person, and they loved you because my mother was so my mother and father. They all the people in the state knew him and loved him, and they loved my older brothers and sisters. They were involved in everything. You could always count on a Clawson to do something for you, and so it was a wonderful thing to be a Clawson. Um, but it was interesting to go to Rick's and not be a Clausen. And I suppose that was part of my faith development. I was there and I kind of realized, hey, nobody expects me to be anything. I can do whatever I want here, but I wanted to do what I'd been doing all along. <laughs> so you chose to continue your good works. Yes. Yeah. So you went to Idaho and they went to Indonesia. So <laughs> your time in Idaho, anything that you experienced there that was uh, that made an impact on you, that was transformative for you in your two years in Idaho? Oh, just the whole experience that I would, like I said, I was just me by, and, and just my roommate was from Montana, Shauna Weisgram. And I think my parents were a little frightened when I first came home after that first year that I'd gone hick on them or something. Mm -hmm. And just, you know, being out west and learning about tumbleweeds. I didn't know what, what tumbleweeds were. And <laughs> you got education there in Idaho. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and just uh, another roommate was from Utah and one was from uh, New Mexico. And um, just uh, wonderful teachers there. There really is a beautiful spirit at BYU-Idaho. Just uh, good teachers had you always planned on doing two years there and then going to Provo, or was that something you hadn't really talked about? Yeah, yeah, that was the plan. At the time, Ricks was just a, a two-year school. And so after my first year, I'd taken some introductory classes, and I decided to major in elementary ed. And so the next year, I did some specifics and then went on to BYU after that and did major in 
elementary education. And I would like to note that I graduated in four years. <laughs> Had you considered serving a mission? Nope. My sister Marcel served a service mission. Um, I don't think I knew any girls that served mission growing up. And there were, there were very few girls that I knew of or girls that I saw that served proselyting missions. Didn't know of that. And Marcel served a service missionary. So never thought of mission, never did semester abroad, just plugged along at BYU. So anything, any experiences at BYU that were, that impacted you, that were transformative, changed the course of your No, experience? but actually I need to back up a little bit. And so um, after one year in Indonesia, the family had another traumatic event there. So I was in Idaho my father uh, was actually traveling. He was in the Philippines, and he had a very serious heart attack. And luckily for us, the Philippines happened to have the very best medical care for heart problems anywhere in the Asian area. So he had, and his hotel was very close to one of the best hospitals. So he was able to get very good care he was taken care of, but straight from the Philippines, um, he it was it was decided that he couldn't stay in Indonesia working for IBM. They needed to come back home. He needed time to recuperate, and so the family had to move back. But he couldn't help with all that. So he, when he was well enough to travel from the Philippines, he flew to Seattle and stayed with his parents. And my mother and the five younger, plus Lori and me, who had come home from school because Marcel and Shipper were on their missions. So my mother and the five and Lori and I traveled back to Connecticut. And, um, but it was just very scary at the time that dad had the heart attack and everybody was worried and it was very hard for the family but th that whole year, there were just a lot of really hard things that happened that um, had a lot of blessings with them as well. My grandma Shipper died, and my brother Jim decided to get married very quickly. And then, the, the like I said, Shipper and Marcel went on their missions, and they both went to Indonesia because their visas allow them there. And so the mission president in Indonesia called Salt Lake and said, I need these two missionaries here. And anyway... Um, just good things and bad things, but that was a big event. And coming home that summer, that was just um, it was a very hard summer for me. I'd gone away from home, and now I came back home. I mean, we'd moved, I'd traveled, we'd done all these things, and yet um, I was kind of struggling to find my place, I guess. Uh, my mom and I fought a lot. <laughs> She'd get mad at me because I was fighting because I'd always been so docile before. <laughs> You're putting your foot down, huh? <laughs> Trying to figure out who I was. And... So you, you, mentioned, was... you mentioned so these two traumatic events. Your yes. younger brother Todd dying when you were yes. little. And then and my your father, father having, his heart, having a heart attack and all that went with that. So those two events, how do you, looking back on it, how do you feel that that kind of changed you or impacted you? 
in any way. Well, I feel like Todd's death made the whole family constantly think more about the temple and the eternal nature of families. And my mother always kept a chest of clothes and toys and some of his special things reminded him. And not very often, but once in a while, she would bring some things out and talk about him a little bit more so that the younger kids knew him and that the older kids would remember him. So I think in that way, it brought all of us closer as a to to remember that. And then my dad's heart attack also, again, just remembering the frailty of life and um, the importance of... And, and we always saw the miracles along with these difficult times. My parents and all of us had a lot of faith um, and trust in God that things would work out. So there are probably actually faith-building experiences for you then. Yeah. So you... Finished college. Finished college, two years at BYU. Nothing happened there, no experiences at BYU that were no, memorable. Kind of unhappy <clears throat> at first, but I got over it. <laughs> How come you were unhappy? Because well, I now I was a, been at Rick's, and it was just so great, and then I was just a nobody at... BYU a, and I didn't have great classes and I didn't have great roommates and I didn't have great teachers. <laughs> small fish in a big pond. And it was just kind of a well. So I graduated and then I was so like, wait a minute, I'm done. I have to go out and be a, an adult. Can I just stay here and take some more classes? Somebody called it spinning your wheels. <laughs> <laughs> yes, in my senior year, this boy had come moved into the ward. And we both lived in houses that our parents owned, so this wasn't a typical lots of apartments um, ward. It was more houses and small, small apartments. And so I met this young man, and we the a few people he was he was home teaching. My roommate and I came home from school one day. This was in February. He came in January. He started school in January. And it was early in February, and I came home and was just chatting, you know, so, oh, hi. You know, they were there visiting her. And I said, oh, hey, how's everybody doing? And they said, hey, don't you like to ski? We're, some of us are going skiing next Monday. It's President's Day. Why don't you come with us? And I thought, oh, I don't know. I've got a lot of projects I need to finish up. And they said, oh, come on. It'll be so fun. So I said, okay, all right, I'll go for a half day. You think I can get right up and ride back just for half day? And they said, yeah, yeah, we can work that out. So we went skiing. Oh, I think there were three cars that went up. One of them was a little Volkswagen Beetle crammed with skiers and skis. Imagine that. And the group of us, we kind of all went down the, the first bunny hill together. You kind of assess each other's levels, seeing who could go off at a, you know, some one boy had never skied before and his girlfriend was trying to teach him and somebody else was pretty new. And this this boy that had invited me, they're like, oh, yeah, I could probably ski like that. So he and I took off and we spent the morning together. And he shared a Pop-Tart with me on the ski lift. And we had so much fun together. And then at family night that night, we talked some more. And about a week later, he asked me out. It was so fun. So it was cute. Brian. So we started dating, and before we'd gotten very serious, he said, 
he talked to me about coming to California, telling me about California. And he said, you've never been to California. You have never been to Disneyland. You would love Disneyland. You should come home with me at the end of the semester and I'll take you to Disneyland. And, you know, I was like, you know, I'm graduating. Maybe I should do something fun. That that should be fun. I like this guy. And, and, and my sister Lori was married and she was living in San Diego. So I thought, yeah, I could go and I could visit Lori and we'll go see Disneyland. Okay. Well, by the time we got there, we were feeling much more stronger feelings. <laughs> but we still kept it. And so I did have a wonderful time. And then he wrote me letters. But I went back to Connecticut and he wrote me letters all, all summer long. And I wrote him too. And then that fall, well, that was another reason, I guess, in the back of my mind, I thought, I don't want to just leave BYU. I want to see what's going to happen with this cute boy. So in October, we got engaged. And, but I did not want to get married at Christmas time because it was my birthday and I didn't want to have <laughs> Christmas and birthday and wedding all at once. So I made every, him wait until the spring. So we got married the next May. We got married in the Washington, D.C. temple. And uh, then we flew back to California. He had a job lined up for the summer. So I found some temporary work. I, in the summers during college, I always did temporary secretarial work. I was, good, I was a good secretary, good typist. I could make the letters look nice. I could answer the phone. So we both worked at different jobs in the summer, and we lived in a house. He'd found some people in his ward that were leaving for the whole summer, so we could just stay in their house for free. We did some house sitting. And then he went back to BYU. He had another year before he graduated. So we had a year at BYU together, and then after he graduated, we went to Lexington, Kentucky for medical school. And our first two children were born there in Lexington. After Kentucky, he had a residency in Fresno, California. So we moved to Clovis, which is just outside of Fresno. Our daughter Erin was born there, and he finished his residency. And then we moved, when he finished, we, he got a job with a hospital in Payson, Utah. So we moved to Elkridge, and our next child, Casey was born shortly after we moved there, and we lived there for 13 wonderful years. It was a beautiful area, quiet community. My mom, by this time, had moved into Provo, so we weren't too far from family. His parents in California came up and visited often. He had a good job. We had a great ward. We were busy involved. The kids liked their schools. They liked their friends. It was a very different experience for me living in the predominantly Mormon community, but it was it was very good. It's good people there. So go back though. There. Go back to Fresno. Um, when when you arrived there in Fresno or Clovis, shortly after your father passed away. Yes. So just talk about that and maybe the experience you had getting back to Connecticut. That's a good one. <laughs> How much detail do you want here? <laughs> Can you go find me some tissues? <laughs> So it was 10 years from that first heart attack. The, he was just at home in the summertime and he just collapsed that on the front lawn. And the 
the went to the hospital. They called the ambulance and went to the hospital. And I think he was there for about two days. So the family called me, and there I was in. We we were brand new in Fresno in Clovis. I think I'd met. We'd met some people at church, and he was a resident. He couldn't leave. He couldn't do anything. He couldn't come home and take care of the kids. I had two two little children, Colleen and Michael. And my mom, my family called and said, you need to come. We don't think he's going to make it. And we didn't have any money. <laughs> I didn't know how to get there. This this wasn't in the day when you could just Google your airline tickets and things. So um, uh, I, I called Brian's parents and told them the situation. And his dad said, well, here's our credit card number. Just call the airline and get a, get a ticket and we'll figure it out later. So I somehow did that, call, managed to do that. Um, but I needed I needed a ride to the airport, and I was taking the kids with me. And I had met one lady in the ward who said she was my visiting teacher or something. She was my visiting teacher. Her name was Marjorie Killian. I always want to remember her name. So we went to the Clovis Airport when for our plane, and I went up to the ticket counter, and so she gave me a ride. I called her to get to get a ride to the airport with my two little kids. And she came and she didn't just drop us off. You know, back then you could, there was more room at the airport and there wasn't all the security hassles. So she said, I'll just wait with the kids while you get checked in. And uh, so here she is in the airport with two little kids. <laughs> and, um, I, when I went to the ticket counter, there was something wrong. And I don't know what it was. I don't even know if the clerk told me what it was. Because, of course, I'm pretty in my mind. All I'm thinking about is my family and my dad and what's happening and what's going on. And um, there were no cell phones. We didn't talk back and forth or anything. And she just kept telling me that something was wrong or that I needed a new ticket or this and that and that. And, and I don't know what the people behind me were doing. I was, felt like I was at that counter for an hour. And by then I had missed my plane, I think. So then she was trying to reroute me on another one. Me and my two little kids going from Clovis, California to New York City, trying to get a flight there. And the sweet lady was just taking care of my kids this whole time. And as this lady's trying to process my ticket again, she says, um, your credit card isn't, isn't working. I can't get your credit card to work. So I'm here at the airport trying to get home from my father's dying. This lady is helping with my two kids. I don't have any money. I, I was just, I just couldn't think through this. And this sweet Marjorie Killian, you know, finally came back and said, is there a problem? I said, well, she, she won't take my credit card. She whips out her purse and says, well, here, use mine for a same-day airplane ticket for three people across country to New York and back. I didn't even know how much it was. I couldn't believe it. She was so nice. And I was like, I can't do that. How can I ever pay you? And she said, well, your husband's going to be a doctor. Someday you do it for somebody else who needs it. That was her attitude. So we somehow managed to get on the plane. And all I could, I just cried the whole way. And when we get off the plane, 
<laughs> sorry, my mother and some of my sisters met me there. And I said, oh, no, if you're here, you're not at the hospital. It means dad has died. We just cried and cried and went back to the house and cried some more. <laughs> that was just a hard time. Anyway, my mother did pay back Marjorie Killian. And she was just a true angel when I needed her. And Brian was able to take a few days off to come back to Connecticut for the funeral. I don't know how you managed to fly there. <laughs> Your parents probably played yeah, for you. Yeah, I don't remember how I got there. And I had to beg the <laughs> hospital to let me have time, time off to go. Yeah, so. he only came for about two days. It was pretty quick. Yeah. So. But I thought that was a... That was just a story. I always remember the story of her helping you. Yeah, she was a very good lady. Just random people, just giving giving their we all. We were brand new. I had just met her. <laughs> she did all that for us and didn't even think about it. <laughs> <laughs> so just to kind of give a flavor, what, what do you remember about Kentucky? What happened in Kentucky when we were going to school there that was memorable for you or that? was transformative or changed you? Well, I worked for the first two years. Got a, uh, Actually, when we first moved there, I was pregnant with our oldest Colleen. And she was due, I think she was due the end of September, but she didn't come until October 11th. So we knew I couldn't work at first. My wonderful husband somehow managed to get us through <laughs> the first six months paying for school and rent and all that we needed with savings that we had over the summer and loans, I guess, school loans. So uh, that was a big thing is finally having your first child, of course, far away from family. I think it was harder on the grandparents than it was on us. We didn't know any better. <laughs> That's a funny thing. Often people say, oh, I think it was harder on the grandparents there than it was on the on us having a, a little a baby far away from family. Sometimes people would say to us, "Oh, wasn't it just so hard going through medical school all alone and everything you did?" And we didn't know any better. We didn't know any differently. So we thought it was just fine. You got by. You made some good friends. I made some wonderful friends, and living in Kentucky was it was really good for us to become our own people. We weren't living by my parents or his parents. We weren't in school with all the other young married people. We could really, it was a time for us to really grow our relationship and start becoming our own little family and kind of make plans and ideas of the things that we wanted to do. So after about six months though, Brian kept bringing home uh, Ad, want ads from school newspapers. <laughs> he wanted me to start working again. And I was so scared to go back to work with a baby and so worried about having a babysitter and whatnot. But I did get a job uh, for doing secretary work for a law, uh, not a law firm, a accounting. accounting firm, Coopers and Librand. I think they've merged several times since then and they have a different name. And we found a very nice young family in the ward she offered to babysit Colleen for us so Brian would go to school and Colleen would go to the babysitter and I would go to work so I worked for two years and at the end of those two years we had our second baby Michael and then I stayed home for a year 
uh, while Brian finished up school, he would find work on the weekends. <laughs> he would go do drug tests, go stay in a hotel, and they took your, they would give you shots or feed you pills or something and take your blood every few hours to <laughs> and pay you, pay you money to do it. And didn't you go give plasma and things like that too, I think? No, just the drug testing. The drug testing. Yeah. Find ways to earn a little bit of money for us. Okay, so two, two kids born in Kentucky. Oh, yeah, and, and then, Michael. Should we talk about Michael? Yeah, if that's something you remember. Yeah, that was a big deal. That was another sweet couple that we're still good friends with. So Michael was um, almost a year old. We were nearing the end of that last year. Brian was finishing up his rotations. We were planning to move. We did not know where we were going yet. He did not have a residency lined up yet. There's a big match. It was in March and um, I taken the kids out. I think we went to a St. Patrick's Day parade and it was kind of cold and we came home and Michael was a very easy baby. He was very good natured and just, and he sucked his thumb and he, he hardly ever fussed and occasionally if he he would if he was fussing if he didn't sleep in the night I knew he had an earache so we came home that night and he seemed a little bit fussy but it was Sunday and I thought well we'll see how he's doing and I could take him to the doctor on Monday and Brian came home from whatever he was doing that day and he started holding him and looking at him and he said I think we need to take him to a doctor and I was like oh we can wait till the morning and he'd check on him again and he'd say we need to we need to go to the ER. We need to have him looked at. He wasn't telling me what his student doctor brain <laughs> was noticing and running through. So we asked some friends to watch Colleen, and we took Michael to the ER. And they were very worried about him. He had a high fever, and um, how you tell? How did you know that he was, was just very lethargic and? Uh... His eyes were glazed over. He looked like he was really sick and septic. So he had meningitis. And um, it was a little scary again, just being there. But good friends came. So Michael ended up, after the initial, they had to give him some IV antibiotics. Actually, they had to run the course for 10 days. So he stayed in the hospital for 10 days. And after the first 24 hours, I think he was out of the woods. He was in the ICU for about first two or three days oh so, really yeah yeah it took a few anyway, days so after about two days again just nice people taking care of Colleen for me all this time so that I could be at the hospital so because I, I had to spend 10 days with Michael I would come home at night but during the day I had to stay with him and the Relief Society in the ward had sisters sign up to come and bring me lunch. And it wasn't so much that I needed the food, but it was so nice to have someone to just say hello to and visit with for a few minutes during the day. And, um, yeah, people came by and helped us out. And uh, that was um, a meaningful time in our young married life. It's hard to see your baby so sick and so worried about him for a while. But he came through. So, so you were in Utah for your next step, and the rest of your kids were born in Utah. So yes, the last three born Casey, in Utah, and you were there for thirteen yeah. years. Mm -hmm. So, how would you summarize those years? What stories do you remember that may kind of summarize the years in in Utah? Um, Utah was a different ty type of 
spiritual growth, I think. Um, the close-knit community and the callings that we had and the, the caliber of the people around you. So many bishops and um, you worked with a lot of really good bishops as just learning about the gospel and how the church works and giving blessings and being involved in that was really good. And your career went well. You had good doctors and working at the hospital. You had good opportunities there, I feel like. It was a good time for our kids. We were very grateful for the schools were, were good there. They went to school in Payson. Um, actually, there was a new school built down in Salem, Mount Lofer Elementary. The younger ones went to. And the high school, even though it was an older school, had uh, what I appreciated most was the music program. Starting in sixth grade, everybody had to take either choir, band, or orchestra. And we, I was, so all our kids got involved in music at an early age and stuck with it because lots of people were, were doing it, their friends were doing it. And I feel that music is a very important part of their growing up years and of their life. So I'm really glad that we had a good start with that, being involved in music. I think it enhances your life in a beautiful way. So it was a happy time. It was. It was successful. Very good years. Ha family was happy. Things were going well. Yeah, not too far from my mom and other relatives would visit her. So we saw a lot of family occasionally. So why did yeah. you leave? <laughs> good question. <laughs> <laughs> that cute boy that shared Pop-Tots with me on the ski lift. Un he knew that we were happy there. He was happy there too, for the most part. But his his... He used to come, so being a physician, you frequently get opportunities in the mail, little postcards saying, work opportunity in California, and they know your history, they know where you've been and places where you like to go. Work opportunity in Montana or Colorado or, or other places in Utah. And sometimes he'd just throw them away, but sometimes he'd bring them home and he'd say, hey, what would you think about this? And... Um, if they were California, I said, no, I'm never moving back there again. It's a wonderful place to visit, but just got too crazy after we lived there. And so then, then he started bringing them home on a more frequent, <laughs> timely matter. And after about four of them, I said, wait, you're not just teasing anymore. Do you really want to move? And he said, well, what would you think if I was said yes? <laughs> So it turns out the clinic that he worked with had been bought by a bigger clinic. And then, of course, they weren't able to function the way he had in the past. Little things like, we're out of toner for the copier, so we can't make any copies. Well, why don't you get toner? Well, we put in an order for it, but we're waiting for the supply truck to bring it down because now everything has to go through the whole system rather than just your office. And they weren't as involved in the hiring process of their staff and um, even just the logistics of what the staff was doing so much. Anyway, so he was getting a little frustrated with how things were working there in the office. I, When I realized that, I said, Brian, your work is so important and you have to go every day and I, it's you need to be happy. So if you want to make a change, I'm willing to do that for you. So if you bring some more home, let's Think about it. He said, even Montana, because he'd been bringing some home from Montana. And I said, I don't want to live in Montana. 
they have two seasons. They have spring and they have winter. <laughs> I'm living in Montana. <laughs> spring only lasts two months. But I said, I'd even look at Montana if that's what you want to do. So the next time he brought home a card, it said, practice opportunity in the San Juan Islands. And I said, where's that? And he said, it's Anacortes, Washington. And I said, where's that? <laughs> he said, it's near Seattle. And I said, oh, I know where Seattle is. My grandparents had lived in Bellevue, so I knew a little bit about Seattle. You were born in Seattle. I was born in Seattle. My parents had lived there after they'd been after school there for a while, and um, that was funny. So we were. He came home and he said, "Hey, how about this trip? How about this opportunity?" And I said, "Well, let's look at it. I told you I'd be open to look at some things." As it turned out, we were planning a trip to Seattle for some medical courses. And we said, let's cut that trip short and we'll go up to Anacortes for a day and see what it's all about. Brian's parents came to watch the kids. We'd already had that arranged. We went on our trip. We went up and we saw this beautiful emerald island and we met the people at the office, Dr. Nancy Llewellyn. And it sounded like a perfect opportunity, another small clinic just growing and starting, and he was so ready for that and so excited. We knew it would be hard on the children, but it would also be a good opportunity to, number one, experience change, know what it felt like to be the new kids around. Um, we thought, since both of us had grown up outside of where there was a strong Mormon influence, we knew it would be good for them. And, and they'd had that in Utah, which was a great thing, but we also knew it would be a good opportunity to grow up where the church wasn't quite as prominent. So the next step was to convince the kids. <laughs> so that was in October. And for Thanksgiving, we told them that we were bringing them all up here so they could see this area and their reactions were just what we thought oh, I don't want to leave my friends so but what were your first impressions of Anacortes even though it was it was October so it wasn't quite the rainy season it was just beautiful it was green it was green I love seeing the ocean I just I just felt like comfortable being here I, I like the small town I like that it was just quiet it seemed a very peaceful place very down-to-earth the ward members, um, I just knew that in a place like that, you, you bond with your ward members because you don't have the, you don't have a lot of family and you don't have um, the, uh, like, like I said, it's a different feeling than when you're in somewhere where there's lots of LDS all around. So it was great. What do, you, good. what do you feel was the hardest thing about leaving your life in Utah? There, uh, there really wasn't anything. Um, I had been so prepared for it. Um, I had been young women's president, and I had some challenging girls, and it was a very difficult year for me. And I was sitting in a ward council meeting, and I thought, I don't belong here. I don't. I shouldn't be doing this. I, I just. I'm. I'm this is. I'm done. And a few weeks later, Bishop Dave McKee called me into his office and said, I just look at you on the stand and I feel like something's wrong. <laughs> What's going on? <laughs> I said, I don't know. I'm happy to do whatever you want, but I, I just I just think I'm, I'm done. And he said, yeah, I think it's time. So, I, and that was, I don't, in the spring maybe, 
and then your your thing came you know it was about that time summer that you started so through the whole process of moving i i just i, I was ready to leave elkridge um we had well actually the fact that the tunes marie tune was one person that i also highly looked up to and respected and loved and they announced that they were moving about the same time we did <laughs> i couldn't believe it and then i kind of thought well if marie's leaving it's okay i don't need to stay <laughs> That's silly. There were other good friends there too, good people. But uh, I really felt like I, I was prepared with that thought of I just, I, uh, I had done what I needed to do there. My kids had had some great opportunities. We were very grateful for the many wonderful people there helped me raise my kids. Well, actually, when I left, I thought, oh, I raised my family here. And now... We've lived in Anacortes for almost 20 years, and so <laughs> I really raised my family in Anacortes, but we had a good, strong beginning in Elk Ridge. All the kids claim Anacortes is their home, even though those older ones had to leave their friends. They all feel like it was so good that we did that to them, for them, and they had some great opportunities in Anacortes. And we're very happy that we did that there. Michael was a senior when we moved there and kind of went in this mentality of uh, as if you were doing a semester abroad or something. He said, well, okay, I'll go to Anacortes, but I'm going right back to BYU to be with my friends. <laughs> and he uh, did great, actually, in Anacortes, joined the choir, made friends, had some good friends in the ward. Um so talk about Anacortes a little bit, the, the, fam the families growing up uh, and over the years in Anacortes. What's, what's going on with the family? Good years in Anacortes. Um, yeah, again, good schools, good ward, fun stake here in Mount Vernon. The kids loved going to the stake activities and it reminded me of growing up and how much we loved all the stake activities. So those were good times. And um, and, and you had a state calling. I, I did, and I loved that. Tell I loved us about the people that. I worked with. I was the state young women's president. Lorna Kies and Kate Atkinson were my counselors. Renee Crandall was my secretary, and I loved working with those women. And you we, had had a bad experience being a oh, ward yes. young men, woman's president a few years before that while you were in Utah. Yeah. So you get this call as state young woman's president. What? I said, you, I can't do that. that? <laughs> president Lamb was the counselor in the state president at the time. He called me in and, and I said, no, I can't do that. And he said, well, what do you mean? I said, well, the girls hate me. <laughs> he said, talk to me about this. And I said, well, I like rules. And I like to follow the rules. And I like to be firm. <laughs> and um, So you're a fun sucker. I, yeah, Casey called me a fun sucker and it fits. Uh, but he talked me into it anyway, and actually, for me, I didn't work a lot with the girls. I worked with the young women's presidents. I really felt like in my that position for me, I was more working with the young women's presidents. Obviously, I interacted with the girls, and we met them, and we did things, and we had fun at girls' camp. But the, I really felt like I was there for the other young women leaders in the wards, and my very first... Uh, as a stake leader, you go and you visit the ward. You know, you have the 
ward, what are those called? Ward, ward conference. Ward conferences, yeah. And you go in, you visit with the people, and you have a meeting. And I went to this ward with these older women who had been in their calling for years. <laughs> I felt so inadequate. They were so, so sweet to me, just totally helping me along. Maureen Hatton, just just so nice, and, and, and everywhere they were just so good. And so, what um, do you think you learned to... from that experience? How did you develop? I have no idea <laughs> what I learned, <laughs> other than I just loved these people. I loved their effort. Um, I loved the feeling of coming together, even though we were we only saw each other once or twice a month. You know, we'd have a meeting and a ward conference or something. And, um, it was just good to be with them and learn of their um, situations and their families and their struggles. So as your family grew, the kids got married and had kids. So just tell us, me, briefly, <laughs> how that experience of gaining in-laws and grandkids uh, has impacted you in general. Yeah, it's always kind of a surprise when the first one starts. Ah, you just you, you just can't believe it's happening that your kids are getting married um, and then having babies. But overall, it's so enlarging of your life, your scope, and your your love circle just grows. We've been blessed with just wonderful in-laws. We appreciate all that they bring to the family and all that they do for their spouses and how they're raising their children. And um, they are so tolerant of us. They are willing to get together as a big group and put up with each other. And we've had some wonderful memories together with them. Um, uh, They... They let us be grandparents. They're not, you know, they let us have fun with the kids and do nice things with them. And I don't think we're too overbearing because we don't see them that often. <laughs> we don't make too many demands. <laughs> um, certainly gives you perspective. At our whopping age of 62, I, I know I, I apologize to my children with my first ones, I was like, oh, I have to make them be good children. I have to teach them how to be good people. And I, I guess I felt like it was my responsibility to, you know, to tell them what they needed to do. And I remember one time Aaron getting upset and saying, you never tell us the good things we do. You never say thank you. You're just always on our case for bad things. <laughs> and I said, that's not true. And then I thought about it and I thought, well, maybe I don't enough. So by the time Madeline was in high school and she'd skip a class or blow something or do something that I thought was stupid, I'd just say, well, okay, <laughs> I hope you're learning something. <laughs> and I probably should have been a little tougher on her. <laughs> so uh, sorry to both ends of the spectrum there. <laughs> it's, it's the first pancake. You know, you burn the, you burn <laughs> the, the first, first couple the last. of them. <laughs> Well, you are, you already know that I spoiled that line. <laughs> okay, so a few more questions. Tell me us about your experience when your husband was bishop. What what was that like for you? Lonely. <laughs> <laughs> so great opportunities for him. 
it was COVID for half of it too. That was the other reason we were just, um, I couldn't have, uh, well, I didn't have, you know, as a bishop's wife, you're not in a presidency anymore. And that really brings a mm, social aspect to it, which I always enjoyed in my different callings. Uh, you're usually meeting with other people often and doing things. And I was primary courser, which I loved. It's so fun. That's probably my favorite calling. And, but I don't, I just get to do my own thing, which is good in a way. But I am a pretty social person and I like to talk with other women a lot. And I just didn't have the same. Plus, my kids were grown now. So, you know, when you have young kids, you're meeting for this or meeting for that or going here, doing things together. And I didn't have any of that anymore either. And us empty nesters, somebody is always going away somewhere. You have to really work hard to <laughs> find someone's at home that is home that can do something with you. So now you're serving a mission. Yes. So just briefly, what's been the growth parts or good parts of being here as a missionary? I love it. This is so much fun. There are a lot of hard things. There are a lot hard, uh, not really hard, hard of new things, uh, things to get over. Uh, the, again, I'm lonely a lot of time because even though I'm with him, it's just him. <laughs> I'm a very social person <laughs> and I don't have that group of women to go do things with. <laughs> uh, we're assigned to this YSA branch, but you know, they're YSA. I don't have that group of women again. Uh, there's a lot of other good missionary couples, and when we're with them, it's a lot of fun, but it, it's not a regular thing. So um, learning to... Every senior couple's mission is different. That's one thing I've certainly learned. And there's certainly been more opportunity for studying the gospel. We just love it when we can go to some of the district councils and... Um, the Zoom meetings with the youth and the area, um, the, the different meetings that you go to with missionaries and hear about gospel principles. And it's that's all been fun. Teaching an institute class, we've discussed lots of religious things that are good, get me thinking, get me feeling. Um, we've talked recently in Easter about the atonement, trying to feel that more in my life. We talked about pride, and I, I've known before that pride isn't just boasting and showing off. It's also being insecure and um, uh, holding back. I heard a wonderful podcast on the Latter-day Saint Women podcast, Sister Jean. I've heard variations of the story, but Sister Bingham said... As she was called into the generally study presidency, Elder Scott was there in the room and said something to her, like, how do you feel? And she says, oh, I just feel so inadequate. I don't think I do it. And he said, don't you spend a nanosecond thinking about yourself. You just get to work. And I just love that it was nanosecond and that it was Elder Scott, the nuclear guy that used that term on her, which is similar to President Hinckley's story on his mission, how his dad said, just roll up your sleeves and get to work, get on your knees and then get to work. So I'm trying to not think about me being lonely. I'm trying to not think about how I feel. I'm just trying to think more about what can we do? What, what else can we 
how else can we offer, can we give and not worry that I'm a little embarrassed or oh, we've been playing the piano while we're here and I make mistakes every single time. I make a lot of mistakes most of the time and I'm only playing out of the Simplified Hymn Book so I'm not very good and I make so many mistakes. But you just have to try. You just have to do what you can do. And I hope I take that back and continue to keep trying new things. What is a favorite hymn and why? Well, all the hymns are beautiful. I don't like picking favorites of anything. A favorite. But he makes me pick favorites sometimes. So a one that I like a lot is How Gentle God's Command, because it has a beautiful melody, and we don't sing it a ton of, uh, all the time, frequently. So it's kind of a special one. And when it sings the, the line, Come cast your burdens on the Lord and bear a song away. I just think that's so beautiful. How much, come cast your burdens on the Lord. There's so much imagery there for me. And bear a song away. Be joyful. What do you love most about the Anacortes Ward? The people are kind and they're down to earth. And the women are not pretentious. That makes me sound like I'm, <laughs> I'm snotty that I notice it. <laughs> but they're not wearing the latest fashions or up on fancy hairdos and lots of makeup and things. They're just themselves. Okay, so a couple just general questions to, to finish up. Any experiences in your life that you can look back on and say, this is this is a turning point or a transformational point for me? Any experiences that really kind of changed the trajectory of your life? Well, I think I've already talked about those. You know, Todd's death and going to Idaho and my dad's, Indonesia and my dad's death and, and getting married. Getting married certainly changed to you, to a great man, certainly changed the trajectory of my life. Okay. Um, President Oaks taught the final judgment is not just an evaluation of a sum total of good and evil acts, what we have done. It is an acknowledgement of the final effect of our acts and thoughts, what we have become. It is not enough for anyone just to go through the motions. The commandments, ordinances, and covenants of the gospel are not a list of deposits required to be made in some heavenly account. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a plan that shows us how to become what our Heavenly Father desires us to become. So, Christine, what have you become or what are you becoming? How have you changed over the course of your life? I hope that I am becoming a better disciple of Jesus Christ. I hope that I'm finding more ways to follow him. President Monson said one time, gave a talk, fill your mind with knowledge, fill your life with service, fill your heart with love. I think that would be a beautiful epitaph on your tombstone. And I hope that by following Jesus, I can be doing those things. Okay, if you could send one message 100 years into the future for your posterity to hear, what would it be? Hold to the rod. The church, the gospel of Jesus Christ brings joy, brings blessings. Build a firm foundation on your faith in Jesus Christ. Okay, anything else you want to say before we sign off? I love you. <laughs> All right, thanks for joining us today for our You're podcast. You're welcome. Okay.
Thank you for joining us today on the Of One Heart podcast. We hope you enjoyed getting to know a little better another member of the Anacortes War family. We will be giving everyone the opportunity to be interviewed on the podcast, but if you want to volunteer, please contact Brother or Sister Murray or President Gardner. We may not yet be where we want to be, and we are not now where we will be. I believe the change we seek in ourselves and in the groups we belong to will come less by activism and more by actively trying every day to understand one another. Why? We're building Zion, a people of one heart and one mind.